to have almost exhausted the substance of the argument with the penetration and precision which leave little room either for addition or amendment. In a cause, therefore, where the interest of truth is so eminently concerned, I would rather retain the ablest counsel when it can be had than venture to be myself her sole advocate. For my own particular part, I frankly confess that as far as the coincidence of historical fate with the Bible predestination holds good, footnote, now I am in some measure enlightened, says the Reverend Mr. Newton of Olney. I can easily perceive that it is in the adjustment and concurrence of seemingly fortuitous circumstances that the ruling power and wisdom of God are most evidently displayed in human affairs. How many such causal events may we remark in the history of Joseph, which had each a necessary influence in his ensuing promotion? If the Midianites had passed by a day sooner or a day later, if they had sold him to any person but Potiphar, if his mistress had been a better woman, if Pharaoh's officers had not displeased their lord, or if any or all of these things had fallen out in any other manner or time than they did, all that followed had been prevented. The promises and purposes of God concerning Israel, their bondage, deliverances, poverty, and settlement must have failed. And as all these things tended to an end, centered in Christ, the promised Savior, the desire of all nations would not have appeared. Mankind had been still in their sins without hope, and the counsels of God's eternal love in favor of sinners defeated. Thus we may see a connection between Joseph's first dream and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all its glorious consequences, so strong, so secret, is the contentation between the greatest and the smallest events. What a formidable thought is this to a believer to know that amidst all the various interfering designs of men, the Lord has one constant design which he cannot, will not miss, namely his own glory and the complete salvation of his people, and that he is wise and strong and faithful to make even those things which seem contrary to his design subservient to promote it. And the footnote. I see no reason why we should be ashamed to acknowledge it. Augustine and many other great and excellent men have not scrupled to admit both the word, that is, the word fate, and a thing properly understood. I am quite of Lipsius's mind. I have no objection to being called a Stoic, so you but prefix the word Christian to it. The last few lines of this preface have been omitted from this edition, as they are of a personal nature. New chapter, Some Account of the Life of Jerome Ventius. It has been asserted that this great divine was born at Alzano in a town of Italy, situate in the valley of Syrai, or Zero. But the learned J. 
John Sherminus, who was not only Zanchi's contemporary, but one of his most intimate friends, expressly affirmed in a speech delivered on a public and important occasion that he was born of an illustrious family at Bergamo, the capital of a little province in the northwest of Italy, anciently a part of Gala Capistana. But in A.D. 28, made a parcel of the Venetian territory, as it still continues. I look upon Sterminus's testimony as decisive in being hardly creditable that he could mistake the native place of a colleague whom he so highly valued, who was living at the very time and with whom he had opportunity of conversing daily. Sterminus adds that there was then remaining at Bergamo a fortress built probably by some of Zanchi's ancestors, known by the name of the Zanchian Tower. In this city was our author born, February 2nd, 1516. At the time of his birth, part of the public service then performing was a light to lighten the Gentiles, etc. And by God's good providence, the Reformation broke forth the very next year in Germany, under the auspices of Luther and began to spread far and wide. At the age of twelve years, Zanchi lost his father. Footnote Francis Zanchius, who seems to have been a native of Venice and was a professor and counselor, and the footnote, who died of the plague in A.D. 1528. His mother, footnote, Barbara, sister to Mark Antony Mitis, a nobleman of great worth and distinction, and the footnote, survived her husband but three years. Deprived thus of both his parents, Nancy resolved on a monastic life and accordingly joined himself to a society of canons, regular. He did this partially to improve himself in literature and partially for the sake of being with some of his relations who had before entered themselves of that house. Here he continued nineteen years, chiefly devoting his studies to Aristotle, to languages, and school divinity. It was his happiness to become acquainted very early in life with Celestus Maximin, Count of Martinlingo, who from being like Zanchi, a bigoted papist by education, became afterwards a burning and shining light in the Reformed Church. Of our author's intimacy with this excellent nobleman and its blessed effects, he himself gives us the following account. I left Italy for the gospel's sake, to which I was not a little animated by the example of Count Maximin, a learned and pious personage, and my most dear brother in the Lord. We had lived together under one roof and in a state of strictest religious friendship for the greater part of sixteen years, being both of us canons regular of nearly the same age and standing, unisons in temper and disposition, pursuing the same course of studies, and, which was better still, joint hearers of Peter Martyr, when that apostolic man publicly expounded St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, and gave private lectures on the Psalms to us his monks. 
From this memorable period, we are evidently to date the era of Vinci's awakening to a true sight and experimental sense of divine things. His friend the Count and the learned Ternelius, who also were converted about the same time under the ministry of Martyr. This happy change being effected, our author's studies began to run in a new channel. The Count, says he, and myself, betook ourselves to a diligent reading of the Holy Scriptures, to which we joined a perusal of the best of the fathers, and particularly Augustine. For some years we went on thus in private and in public. We preached the gospel as far as we were able in his purity. The Count, whose gift and graces were abundantly superior to mine, preached with much greater enlargement of spirit and freedom of utterance than I could ever pretend to. And it was therefore no wonder that he found himself constrained to fly his country before I was. The territory of the Grisians was his immediate place of retreat, from whence removing soon after he settled at Geneva, where he commenced the first pastor of the Protestant Italian church in that city. Having faithfully executed the sacred office for some years, he at length comfortably fell asleep in Christ in the year A.D. 1558, after having on his deathbed commanded the oversight of his flock to the great Calvin. It was in the year 1550 that Peter Martyr himself was obliged to quit Italy, where he could no longer preach, nor even stay with safety. Toward the latter end of the same year, eighteen of his disciples were forced to follow their master from their native land, of which number Zanchi was one. Being thus a refugee, or as he himself used to express it, delivered from his Babylonish captivity, he went into Grisony, where he continued upwards of eight months, and then to Geneva, where after a stay of nearly twelve months, he received an invitation to England upon the recommendation of Peter Martyr, then in this kingdom, to fill a divinity professorship here, I suppose at Oxford, where Martyr had been for some time settled. Then she embraced the offer and began his journey, but was detained on his way by a counter-invitation to Strasbourg, where the divinity chair had been lately vacated by the death of the excellent Caspar Tito. Zanchi was fixed at Strasbourg in A.D. 1553 and taught there for almost eleven years but not without some uneasiness to himself, occasioned by the malicious opposition of several who persecuted him for much the same reason that Cain hated righteous Abel. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 Matters, however, went on tolerably during the lifetime of Sterminius, who was then at the head of the university and Zanchius' fast friend. It was at Strasbourg that he presented the famous declaration of his faith concerning predestination, final perseverance, and the Lord's Supper. He gave it in to the Senate on October 22, 1562, of this admirable performance, that is, of that part of it which respects the first of these points, the reader may form some judgment 
by the following translation. In proportion as the old senators and divines died off one by one, Zantius' situation at Strasbourg grew more and more uncomfortable. Matters at length came to that height that he was required to subscribe to the Augsburg Confession on pain of losing his professorship. After mature deliberation, he did indeed subscribe, but with a declared restriction. Notwithstanding the express limitation with which he fettered his subscription, still this great and good man seems, for peace sake, to have granted too much concerning the manner of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, as appears by the first of three theses maintained by him at this time. I shall here beg leave to interpose one question naturally arising from the subject. What good purpose do the imposition and the multiplication of unnecessary subscriptions to forms of human composition tend to promote? It is a fence far too low to keep out men of little or no principle, and too high sometimes for men of real integrity to surmount. It often opens a door of ready admission to the abandoned who, ostrich like, care not what they swallow, so they can but make subscription a bridge to secular interest. And for the truly honest, it frequently either quite excludes them from a sphere of action wherein they might be eminently useful, or obliges them to testify their assent in such terms and with such open professed restrictions as render subscriptions a mere nothing. Not content with Rachius's confessions, several of the Strasbourg bigots, footnote, particularly John Marbeck, native of Schwimbin or Schwabia, a turbulent, unsteady theologist, displaying knowledge and abusive, a weak but fiery disputer who delighted to live in the smoke of contention and virulent debate. He was, among the rest of his good qualities, excessively loquacious, which made Luther say of him on a very public occasion, This talkative Swabian need not be afraid of spiders, for he keeps his lips in such constant motion that no spider will ever be able to weave a cobweb in his mouth and the footnote, who persisted in raising a controversial dust. They tended accusations against him of errors in point of doctrine, particularly for his supposed heterodoxy concerning the nature of the Lord's Supper, his denial of the omnipresence of Christ's natural body, and his protesting against the lawfulness of images, etc. Nay, they even went so far as to charge him with unsound opinions concerning predestination and the perseverance of the truly regenerate. So early did some of Luther's pretended disciples after the death of that glorious reformer, and he had not been dead at this time above fifteen years, begin to fall off from the doctrines he taught, though they still had the effrontery to call themselves by his name. A grand occasion of this dissension was a book concerning the Eucharist and in defense of consubstantiation written by one Hesuitius 
a fierce, invidious preacher who lavished the despised names of heretic and atheist on all without distinction whose religious system when a hair's breath above or below his own standard. In his preface, he grossly reflected on the elector Palatine, Peter Mater, Bullinger, Calvin, Zwinglius, Clavio and other great divines of that age. Ranchi, in a mere respect to those venerable names, did in concert with the learned Straminus prevail with the magistrates of Strasbourg to prohibit the impression. Mr. Bile is so candid as to acknowledge that Zanchi caused this book to be suppressed, not on account of its doctrine, which he left to the judgment of the church, but for the slander of the preface. Zanchius was a zealous friend of religious liberty. He had too great a share of good sense and real religion to pursue any measures which simply tended either to restrain men from declaring their principles with safety or to shackle the human mind to its inquiries after truth. But he ardently wished to see the contending parties of every denomination carry on their own debates with Christian meekness, modesty, and benevolence. And where these amiable ingredients were wanting, he looked upon disputation as a malignant fervor endangering the health, peace, and safety of the church. When candor is lost, truth is rarely found. The Antiochus' own observations, subjoined below, exhibit a striking picture of that moderation, detachment of bigotry, and liberality of sentiment, which strongly characterize the Christian and the Protestant. Notwithstanding the precautions taken by the magistrates, Hushius' incinerary peace stole through the press, and Zanchius' efforts to strifle its publication were looked upon by the author's party as an injury never to be forgiven. They left no methods unassayed to remove him from his professorship. Many compromising expedients were proposed by the moderate of both parties, the chapter of St. Thomas, of which Zanchius was a canon, met to consider what course should be pursued. By them it was referred to a select committee of thirteen. Zanchi offered to debate the agitated points in a friendly and peaceable manner with his opponents. With offer not being accepted, he made several journeys to other churches and universities in different parts of Germany and requested their opinions which he brought with him in writing. Things, however, could not be settled till the Senate of Strasbourg convened an assembly from other districts consisting partly of divines and partly of persons learned in the laws. These referees, after hearing both sides, recurred to the old fruitless expedient of agreeing on certain articles to which they advised each party to subscribe. Zanchi, desirous of laying these unchristian heats 
and at the same time no less determined to preserve integrity in a good conscience subscribed in these cautious terms. I acknowledge this summary of doctrine to be pious, and so I admit it. This consideration on Zanchi's part was not followed by those peaceful effects which were expected. The peace was too loosely patched up to be of any long duration. His adversaries began to worry him afresh, and just as measures were being on the carpet for a new and more lasting compromise, our divine received an invitation to the church of Geneva, situate on the borders of Italy and in the territory of the Grimmins. Augustine Maynard, pastor of that place, was lately dead, and a messenger arrived to let Zanchi know that he was chosen to succeed him. Having very slender prospect of peace at Strasbourg, he obtained the consent of the Senate to resign his canary of St. Thomas in Professorship of Divinity. While the above debate were depending, he had received separate invitations to Zurich, Geneva, Leiden, Heidelberg, Marburg, and Lausanne, but till he had seen the result of things at Strasbourg, he did not judge any of these calls sufficiently providential to determine his removal. He left Strasbourg, footnote, attended by his servant, Frederick Slosbuck, a native of Hesse, concerning whom Zanchi thus writes, a learned youth and a lover of the gospel, whom I look upon not so much in the light of a domestic as of a faithful friend and a Christian brother. I hardly know which were most extraordinary, the good qualities of the servant or the gratitude and humility of the master. And the footnote. In November of 1563, and he entered on his pastoral charge at Geneva, the beginning of January following. But he had not long been there before the town was visited by a dismal pestilence, which within the space of seven months carried off twelve hundred of the inhabitants. Zanchi, however, continued to exercise his ministry as long as there was an assembly to preach to. At length, the far greater part of the townsmen being swept away, he retreated for a while with his family to an adjoining mountain. His own account is this. Maynard, my pious predecessor, had often foretold the calamity with which the town of Geneva had been said visited. All the inhabitants had been too well convinced that that holy man of God did not prophesy at random. When the plague actually began to make havoc, I enforced repentance and faith while I had a place to preach in or any congregation to hear. Many being dead and others having fled the town like shipwrecked mariners who, to avoid instant destruction, make toward the coast they can. But very few remain, and of these remaining few, some were almost terrified to death, others were solely employed in taking care of the sick, and others in guarding the walls. They concurred in advising me to consult my own safety 
by withdrawing for a time to the indignation should be overpassed. I betook myself, therefore, with all my family to a high mountain, not a vast way from the town, yet remote from human converse and peculiarly formed for contemplation and unmolested retirement. Here we led a solitary life for three months and a half. I devoted my time chiefly to meditation and writing, to prayer and reading the scriptures. I never was happier on my own soul, nor enjoyed a better share of health. Afterwards the plague beginning to abate, he quitted his retreat and resumed the public exercise of his function. After four years' continuance at Geneva, Frederick III, Elector Palatine, prevailed with him to accept a divinity professorship in the University of Heidelberg upon the decease of the famous Zanchuri Urison. In the beginning of the year 1568, Zanchi entered on his new situation and shortly after opened the chair with an admirable oration. In the same year he received his doctor's degree. The Elector Palatine and his son, Prince Sesmer, honoring the ceremony with their presence. He had not been long settled in the Palatine when the Elector, one of the most amiable and religious princes of that age, strongly solicited him to confirm and elucidate the doctrine of the Trinity by writing a professed treatise on that most important subject. Desiring him, moreover, to be very particular and explicit in canvassing the arguments made use of by the Sassanians, who had then fixed their headquarters in Poland and Transylvania, and were exhausting every artifice of sophistry and subterfuge to degrade the Son and Spirit of God to the level of mere creatures. Thence he accordingly employed his leisure hours in obeying this pious command. His mastery and elaborate treatises were written on this occasion, treatises fraught with the most solid learning and argument, breathing at the same time the amiable spirit of genuine candor and transparent piety. Among a variety of interesting particulars, he does not omit to inform his readers that Lilius Sosinus and other favors of the Cervinitan hypothesis had spread neither pains nor art to pervert his judgment and win him over to their party, but that finding him inflexible, they had broke off all intercourse with him and from artful adulterers commenced his determined enemies, an event this which he even looked upon as a blessing and for which he conceived himself bound to render his best thanks to the supreme head of the church, Jesus Christ. He retained his professorship at Heidelberg for ten years, when the elector Frederick, being dead, he removed to Neustadt, the residence of Prince John Casmer, Count Palatine. Here he chose to fix his situation for the present in preference to two invitations he had just received one from the University of Leiden, then lately opened, the other from the Protestant Church at Antwerp. 
the conduct of divine providence respecting Xantius' frequent removals is very observable. He was a lover of peace and passionately fond of retirement, but he was too bright and luminary to be continued always in one place. The salt of the earth must be sprinkled here and there in order to be extensively useful and to season the church throughout. Hence God's faithful ministers, like the officers in a monarch's armies, are quartered in various places, stationed and remanded hither and thither, as may most conduce to the master's service. The church at Lutzstadt enjoyed our author upwards of seven years, being by that time far advanced in life, and the infirmities of age coming on him very fast, he found himself obliged to cease from that constant series of labor and intenseness of application, which he had so long and so indefatigably undergone. He was, at his own request, dismissed from public service at Neustadt by the elector Casimir, receiving at the same time very substantial marks of respect and favor from that religious and generous prince. From Neustadt he repaired once more to Heidelberg, chiefly with a view to see some of his old friends. This proved his last removal on earth, for shortly after his soul, now ripe for glory, dropped the body and ascended to heaven about six in the morning on November 19, 1590, at the age of 75. His remains were interred at Heidelberg in the college chapel of St. Peter, where a small monumental stone was set up to his memory, with this inscription, Here Zanchi rests, whom love of truth constrained to quit his own and seek a foreign land. How good and great he was, how formed to shine, how fraught with science, human and divine. Sufficient proof his numerous writings give, and those who heard him teach and saw him live. Earth still enjoys him, though his soul is fled, his name in deafness, though it, his dust is dead. I cannot help limiting that no more is to be collected concerning this incomparable man than a few outlines of his life, comprising little else but a dry detail of dates and removals. As to his person, I can find no description of it except from some very old and scarce prints, most of which were struck from engravings on wood. These represent him as extremely corpulent, even to unwieldiness, and yet from the astonishing extent, profoundness and exquisite activity of his learning, judgment, and genius, one might well nigh be induced to imagine that he consisted entirely of soul without any dead weight of body at all. For of his mind his writings present us with the loveliest image. He seems to have been possessed and in a very superior degree of those graces, virtues, and abilities which ennoble and exalt human nature to the highest elevation it is capable of below. His clear insight into the truth of the gospel is wonderful, especially considering that the Church of God was but just emerging from the long and dismal night of popish darkness. In himself, previous to his conversion, as deeply plunged in the shades as any, 
It is a blessing which but few are favored with to step almost at once out of midnight into meridian day. He was thoroughly experienced in the divine life of the soul and a happy subject of that internal kingdom of God which lies in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. This enabled him to sustain that impetus of opposition which he almost constantly met with. Few persons have ordinarily borne a larger share of the cross and perhaps none ever sustained it better. In him were happily centered all the meek benevolence of charity and all the hard-hearted firmness of unshakable courage, qualities, alas, not constantly united in men of orthodoxy and learning. He was intimately conversant with the writings of the fathers and of the philosophers of that in the preceding time. His modesty and humility were singular. No man was ever more studious to preserve peace in the Church of Christ, nor more highly relished the pleasures of learned and religious friendship. For some time before his decease, it pleased God to deprive him of his eyesight. For this I take to be the meaning of the excellent Melchior Adamus, to whom I am indebted for much of the preceding account. His works which, with his letters and some other small pieces included, all divided into nine tombs, were collected and published by his executors some years after his death, and are usually bound together in three volumes folio. He was twice married and had several children, none of which, so far as I can find, appear to have survived him. He said by Mr. Light to have been one of the most scholastical among the Protestants, which, however, may be questioned, his style and manner of treating an argument being rather plain and solid than subtle and metaphysical. If scholism be an excellence in a writer, it is certain that the elder Samphemius and the great Francis Turton have since much exceeded Zanchi in that respect. Our learned countryman, Mr. Matthew Poole, terms him a divine of the first class whose expositions written with extraordinary learning and ability prove him to have been a most accomplished scholar. Even Mr. Boyle, who never seems to have been better pleased than when he could pick a hole in the gown of an ecclesiastic, though himself was the son of one, yet allows our author to have been one of the most celebrated Protestant divines, and that few ministers have been so moderate as he. Nor must I admit the honor put upon him by a university of Cambridge within five years after his death. One William Barrett, fellow of Gongjo in Caius College, ventured on April 29, 1595, to preach an Armenian sermon in the face of the university at St. Mary's. I say ventured, for it was a bold and dangerous attempt at that time, when the Church of England was in her purity, for any man to propagate Arminianism. Footnote. As every reader may not have a clear, determinate idea of what Arminianism 
presently is, it may to such be satisfactory to know that it consists chiefly of five particulars. One, the Arminians will not allow election to be an eternal, peculiar, unconditional, and irreversible act of God. Two, they assert that Christ died equally and indiscriminately for every individual of mankind, for them that perish no less for them that are saved. Three, that saving grace is tendered to the acceptance of every man, which he may or may not receive just as he pleases, consequently. Four, that the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is not invincible, but is suspended for its efficacy on the will of man. Five, that saving grace is not an abiding principle, but that those who are loved of God, ransomed by Christ, and born again of the Spirit, may let God wish or strive ever so much to the contrary, throw all away and perish eternally at last. To these many Armenians tack a variety of errors besides, but the above may be considered as a general skeleton of the leading mistakes which characterize the sect and the footnote. And indeed, Barrett himself paid dear for his innovating rashness, which ended in his ruin. The university were so highly offended, both at his presumption on daring to avow his novel heterodox opinions, and for mentioning some great divine, among whom Zanchi was one, in terms of the highest rancor, in disrespect that he was enjoined to make a public recantation in that very pulpit from whence he had so lately vented his errors. This he did on the 5th of May following. Part of his recantation footnote I cannot help observing one more particular respecting this famous recantation wherein the recanter thus expressed himself I assured that Peter's faith indeed could not fail, but that the faith of other believers might, whereas now, being by Christ's own word brought to a better and sounder mind, I acknowledge that Christ prays for the faith of each believer in particular, and that by the efficacy of Christ's prayer all true believers are so supported that their faith cannot fail. Barrett asserted rank Arminian as he was, that Peter's faith did not actually fail. But we have had a recent instance of an Arminian preacher who avers without ceremony that Peter's faith did fail. The passage verbatim, without adding a jot or diminishing a tittle, stands thus. Peter's faith failed, though Christ himself prayed it might not. This is Arminianism double-stilled. The common simple Arminianism that served Barrett and Laud and Halen will not do now for our more enlightened divines. Whether Peter's faith failed or not, that Mr. Allen's modesty has failed him is, I believe, what nobody can deny. And the footnote. Part of his recantation ran thus. Lastly, I rashly uttered these words against John Calvin, a person then whom none has deserved better of the church, 
namely that he had presumed to exalt himself above the Son of God in saying which I acknowledge that I greatly injured that most learned and truly pious man. And I do most humbly entreat that ye will all forgive this my rashness. I also threw out in a most rancorous manner some reflections against P. Martyr, Theodore Beza, Jerome Zanchi, Francis Gerunus, and others of the same religion, who were the lights and ornaments of our church, calling them by the malicious name of Calvinists, and branding them with other reproachful terms. I did wrong in assailing the reputation of these persons, and in endeavoring to lessen their estimation in which they are held, and in dissuading any from reading their most learned works, seeing our church holds these divines in deserved reverence. I would hope, as our articles of religion have not been changed, but stand just as they did at that very time that the Church of England in the year 1769 still considers the above great men and Janchi among the rest as some of her ancient lights and ornaments, and that she holds them in their writings in the same deserved reverence as did the Church of England in the year 1595. New Chapter, page 44. Observations on the divine attributes necessary to be premised in order to our better understanding the doctrine of predestination. Although the great and ever-blessed God is a being absolutely simple and infinitely remote from all shadow of composition, he is nevertheless in condescension to our weak and contracted faculties represented in Scripture as possessed of diverse properties or attributes, which, though seemingly different from his essence, are in reality essential to him and constitutive of his very nature. Of these attributes, those on which we shall now particularly dissent, as being more immediately concerned in the ensuing chapter, are the following ones. One is eternal wisdom and foreknowledge. Two, the absolute freedom and liberty of his will. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, 
in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.